Hi, Andy. Hi, Nan. Great to see you today. Nice to see you too. So today my guest is Andy Philpott. He's professor at the University of Auckland in New Zealand and world expert in optimization under uncertainty and its application in electricity systems. He's the director of the Electric Power Optimization Center, which has been a research leader in the field for 20 years. He has consulted on electricity optimization to many organizations throughout the world. Andy's research has been motivated by practical problems faced by industry that require some theoretical insight to resolve. This has led to a collection of theoretical publications in top OR journals. Moreover, in 2009, Andy and a team from Norske Skog were finalists in the France Edemol competition for the development and deployment of Norskog's pivot model. Andy has been honored for his research, being awarded the Hans Dallenbach Award from the OR Society of New Zealand in 2006, elected to be an Informs Fellow in 2017 and a Simons Fellow in 2019. He has given plenary and keynote addresses to major international conferences, and he was on the editorial board of mathematical programming from 2004 to 2017, and has been an associate editor of operations research since 2007. He has served on numerous informs committees and organized several international workshops and thematic programs. Andy, thank you so much for accepting the invitation. It's such an honor to have you here today. Well, you're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So uh, your actual name is Andrew, right? Uh, that's correct. Yeah, that's the name on my passport. But everyone calls me Andy and has done for many years. So that's the name I go by. Mm -hmm. And where are you from in New Zealand? I was originally uh, born in Christchurch and lived there for about 15 years. And then we shifted to Wellington. So I spent most of the 1970s in Wellington. Um, but now I live in Auckland. Ah, okay. So Christchurch, Wellington, and then uh, Auckland. But then in between, you went somewhere else, right? Exactly. Yes, uh -huh. so I time overseas. Mm -hmm. uh, so tell me about your family background. So um, both my parents are uh, uh, fifth generation New Zealanders. So they've been there for a long, have a long history of, of, of uh, ancestors living in New Zealand. My father uh, was an economist. Uh, that both my parents are dead. My father was an economist um, from, for um, his career. My mother taught reading to high school um, kids who uh, had reading difficulties. Um, and I have one older sister um, who's um, a couple of years older than me, uh, who studied maths and biochemistry, and uh, she was a high school math teacher, but now retired. Mm -hmm. uh, so you were 66, uh, so you basically grew up in the 60s and 70s. So how was life back then, both in Christchurch and Wellington? So it was a very enjoyable childhood. I don't think I have any um, bad memories of it. Um, I was very interested in, in sport, played a lot of sport, and um, also um, had a fairly happy childhood at school and, and um, vacations with parents and so on. So yeah, it was I very enjoyed. So what type of sports did you practice? So I played rugby and tennis competitively, and in, in terms of um, um, you know 
and competition sport, but also I was very interested in, in other sort of recreational activities like skiing and surfing, um, sailing, scuba diving, those sorts of things. So as, yeah, as, a, as a young person, I got involved in a lot of those sorts of activities, which is very easy to do in a place like New Zealand. Mm -hmm. uh, did you play any musical instruments and what type of music did you use to listen in those days? Uh, I learned the guitar or taught myself the guitar. I was quite a, um, never really a, a very good musician, but very, you know, a, an assiduous one. I used to practice quite a lot without really uh, achieving any great standard, but I used to like the music that I could play on the guitar. Paul Simon, um, uh, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, um, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, those sorts of those sorts of bands here. So more uh, folk rock, country music, this type of... Yeah, the sort of thing that I try and play myself uh, was, was the music that I'd, I'd like to uh, like to listen to. Uh -huh. Do you still play nowadays? I do, uh, still quite poorly, but um, I, I, yeah, I have a, um, my daughter has a partner who's a very good guitarist, so I feel somewhat humbled in his presence, but um, I try and play with him occasionally. Uh-huh. Uh, New Zealand is quite isolated from the rest of the world, geographically speaking. And to what extent this has affected uh, you at the time? Well, I, as I said, in the 1960s, I was pretty young, so I didn't really notice it that much. I think in the 70s, it was um, something that one became aware of. I mean, there was always a slight delay in, in, in um, things happening in, in the Northern Hemisphere when, before they got accepted in New Zealand. So we were always slightly behind in terms of in terms of social norms, fashions, and so on. Um, but, you know, in the 70s, by the time the 70s came, you know, we had, you know, American television and and, and, and European television. So we're, we were really up to date in terms of learning about things. It's just that um, the physical manifestations of them, like, for example, you know, new cars and, and clothing and so on would not arrive for some, for some months. And that would be a, for some, uh, a problem not for me i didn't really care too much about that right uh but did you have the chance to travel to the northern hemisphere uh when you were young uh yeah we did um in, in 1967 my father um had a sabbatical he was an economist uh, an academic uh in the university in in uh in christchurch and he had a year sabbatical uh which he spent uh, three months of in in Cornell uh, at, in Ithaca at Cornell University and another three months working for the EU in, in Rome. So he took our whole family, or my sister and me and my mother with, with him and um, we got a chance to tour around the US and also to, to go and live in Rome for three months. Okay. So yeah, that was, that was very good fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, did you visit other places in the US? Apart from New York, yeah, we, we went on a road trip out to California, um, drove to California and back, which was a, I guess, like a, a month-long trip, which was um, sightseeing, but also he was visiting universities at various places on en route. But um, that was always great. great. That was great fun for us too, um, as kids, because and the US was was something that you know we'd seen a lot of on television and heard, read a lot about, and so you know going there as a as a ten-year-old was really uh, amazingly thrilling. Uh -huh. So you went to California? Uh, we went to California, um, yeah, uh, by road. So we drove across through through the Midwest to the California and then back again. 
um, didn't spend much time in California. I, I do remember going to uh, going to San Francisco. It was 1967, and um, you know one would imagine that it would have been uh, the summer of love and so on. And but in fact, there were very little, virtually no evidence of hippies at all, apart from in Haight Ashbury. We drove there in a bus to go sightseeing, and, and you know the the bus driver pointed out the hippies, which were who were who were there. So it was kind of yeah, it's, it's a it was a, a a view of the 1960s that I remember, which sort of doesn't really mesh with what most people think California was like in, in 1967. But I mean, it was actually quite a lot more conservative in my memory than, than, than what you hear in the, uh, in the popular press. Uh, so did you go to San Francisco with flowers in your head? <laughs> uh, I think I had a crew cut at that point, so uh, flowers didn't really go with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, did you have the chance to visit other countries too? Um, we also went to the UK and I remember going to Cambridge and being really taken with the, the, the spires of Cambridge and, and I kind of made a, I don't know whether I made a mental note at that point, thought this would be a great place to come to study if I ever got the chance. I was only you know, 11 years old, so I'm not sure I, uh, that ambition was kind of realistic one but but i think i did make some you know had some vision that this would be an aspiration to try and to try and um meet wow very nice uh, you have a ba in philosophy which is somehow unusual for a noir person uh, what motivated you to pursue this degree so i i took philosophy in my first year at university um i guess it was when i was a, in my final year at school i had a history teacher who asked me to write an essay about uh, John Locke and Thomas Hobbes, who were two political philosophers in the 17th century. We were studying the English Revolution and the teacher said, you know, why don't you write an essay on these two gentlemen? And I went away, I didn't know anything about philosophy and started reading what they'd written and, and, and you know, became quite fascinated by this whole subject that I had really no acquaintance with. So I learned that you could study at a university and in my first year, I, I, I took a course in, in philosophy and got very interested in logic. Uh, I also took mathematics in my first year and um, some science courses. Um, but I got very interested in logic and and decided to pursue that um, as a major at the, at the university. Yeah, so you're interested in philosophy, logic. I wonder uh, if you liked uh, Bertrand Russell, for example. Yeah, we studied Bertrand Russell, I mean, you know, things like the liar paradox, which, which of course, you know, we, uh, as logicians, you you, um, you study in great detail. And, you know, Gödel's incompleteness theorem, all of these things, which, which uh, you know, I found really, really interesting as, as, a, as a, an undergrad at, at, at uh, university. And I, you know, I, the, I really enjoyed university. In my first two or three years, I, um, and thereafter, I enjoyed it, but I was, kind of completely taken by the contrast with high school. It was a completely different learning environment and I, I didn't think I would enjoy it as much as I did. I, re I really um, found it very, very enjoyable. Mm -hmm. um, so and all, you know, the freedom and choice, to, uh, freedom of choice to study whatever you wanted and, and yeah, I, which was not the case at school where you were kind of a lot more constrained. I thought it was really wonderful. Mm -hmm. You probably studied philosophy of sciences as well. Uh, Carl yeah, I did a course in philosophy of science. Um, we, in that, I found interesting. Um, you know, studying the um, um, 
Thomas Kuhn, the, the, the science of the structure of scientific revolutions, and Karl Popper and, and Quine and so on. You know, there's lots of interesting um, people in that in that space. And you know, I, I had done some science, was also doing some physics courses, so reading some philosophy of science, I thought gave me a very nice perspective on those other courses. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, eventually, you ended up obtaining a BSc degree with honors in math. Uh, did you get tired of studying philosophy? Uh, well, I guess not Not really. I, I, I took a math course, as I said, in, in my first year, and, and I tried to do maths as part of my logic degree going through. But my math courses were very much um, pure and um, I, I focus very much on, on pure maths, algebra, and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and, in, in as much, and also they, there were some logic courses in mathematics, which were related to the philosophy degree. Um, but, you know, I, I guess what happened was I, I figured out that I could get a BA and a BSc in four years. So I kind of solved an optimization problem to maximize the number of degrees in four years and that was the solution to it was to get both degrees um, and then I at the end of my that period I decided to major in mathematics so I went and did a, a final year of honors in mathematics so I'm, that was my fifth year mm -hmm. so you mentioned optimization so when did OR came into the picture in your life actually it was in that year when I when I studied um, uh, my honors year I, I took an optimization course which was very much focused on nonlinear programming, um, classical, unconstrained and constrained nonlinear programming, the Cruz Kuntaki conditions and so on, or Kuntaki conditions as they were called in 1978. Um, Karush hadn't kind of emerged at that point mm -hmm. um, in those um, conditions, but um, I really enjoyed that paper and um, uh, I became very interested in, in, in variable metric algorithms for unconstrained optimization, the work of um, you know, Michael Powell and, and um, Roger Fletcher and, and BFGS algorithm and so on and, and you know, decided that would be a, a, a direction I wanted to go in, in, the, in, the, in the future. Okay, so that's quite interesting. So uh, the entrance was through nonlinear programming, the classical optimization instead of linear programming, right? Uh, yes. But did you, did you study the simplex algorithm too at the time or, or only later? Uh, only later, I, I, I did a course in, in um, so what happened was I finished my honours degree and um, I got a, was very fortunate getting a scholarship to go to the UK and then I had six months before that course began. So then I did some OR papers, I discovered there was this an, an OR, uh, some OR courses which I hadn't known about at the university and since I was going to Cambridge to do a, an OR degree thought I would do some preparation and then I encountered the simplex method and other OR tools which which helped me further down the track. Um, I have to say my, you know, I, my, my father was an economist, he was very much involved in economic planning so um, even though I wasn't familiar with the simplex method, he was using these tools in um, his, his uh, economic modeling work um, using linear programming and, and um, econo you know, general equilibrium modeling. Um, as part of his work, but I was not really, um, um, I guess, working in that in that in that space with him so much. Very interesting. Uh, were you exposed to computers and programming at that time? 
Well, my first exposure, I, I have to say, was was when I was about eight, when my father took me and my sister into the department in, in, in Christchurch to show us the new computer that they'd bought, a um, big mainframe, and, and um, you know, it, it had some sort of very primitive kind of conversational, um, I, I hesitate to say AI, it was kind of <laughs> a conversational program you could talk to the computer and talk back in a very in a very stilted way which you know was kind of fascinating but then i when i did my first year at university i decided to do computer science as one of my papers and um that was in 1974 we had to write algol um, code on punch cards it was like a 24-hour turnaround for the punch cards going into the computer system and i got completely turned off computers and decided i wouldn't do any computer science at all and I didn't do any for like five years after that because um, until computers became a lot more um, friendly. Okay, uh, so it was not lover for at first sight after all. It was not love at first sight. No, I, <laughs> I didn't like the, uh, the the environment at that at that time. Mm. Uh huh. Uh, so, did New Zealand have an active OR society or group in the 1970s? They did. It was, it was very active, and in fact, a lot more active than it is at the moment. Um, I am um, ashamed to say, it was Hans Dallenbach, who you mentioned, um, was a professor in Christchurch, and he had a very, very strong group of um, good people working in OR there. Um, Auckland, there are a couple of people, um, David Ryan and Merv Rosser, who worked in Auckland, and Wellington had a, um, a guy called uh, Tony Vigno and. And there was a group in the in the what's called the DSIR, which was a government organisation who worked on um, uh, operations research. So I was very active in the 70s. I was, as I said, I didn't really encounter OR until 1979, so I kind of wasn't really involved with those guys at all until I came back to New Zealand in the 80s and then mm -hmm. I um, engaged with them. But at that time, it was very active, yeah. Right. Uh, how did you manage to go to the UK for higher studies? Well, as I said, I, I, I was very lucky in, in being awarded a Commonwealth scholarship. Um, I really only wanted to go to the UK for one year, so I enrolled in a Master of Philosophy in Control Engineering and Operational Research, it was cool. And um, the scholarship um, paid for my fees and travel and so on to go and do that. So, yeah, I was very lucky. Uh -huh. Is it true that your main goal was to join the rugby team in Cambridge? <laughs> yeah, I, I was probably a bit deluded there. Um, um, I, yeah, I, I went over there with that in mind, um, and I tried out for the, the the Blues team and didn't get very far. I think my aspirations were a lot higher than my ability. Um, so um, no, I didn't. I didn't make that team. But I did play for Churchill College on their team, and I ended up. I played rugby league, which is a kind of a, a different sport, but related rugby for the university. So I, I, I got, um, I guess, as close as my ability enabled me to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, what were the requirements to earn the Masters of Philosophy or MPhil degree there in Cambridge? Uh, the MPhil was, was a coursework Masters and there was a dissertation, like a one-term one dissertation. So we had a lot of courses in OR, some of which I found straightforward because I, I done that material, but also courses in control engineering, which I found quite new and and um, a bit more challenging. But um, so it was kind of a, quite a 
eclectic mix of material. I mean, there was a lot of classical OR stuff, but then control engineering involved you know, um, working with transfer functions and uh, Lyapunov stability and you know, a, lot of, a lot of, you know, um, optimal control stuff, which you didn't, wouldn't typically find in an OR degree. Mm -hmm. And what was your master's dissertation about? Uh, so my master's dissertation was motivated by a problem that um, Peter Nash, my supervisor, um, uh, told me about, which was distributing water from the British waterways uh, canals. They used to have these these reservoirs, which we and they would release water through locks into the into the canals um, to ensure there was enough water in the canals for canal boats to travel. So there's sort of random inflows to these reservoirs, and then you had to basically decide how much water to release into the canals and which can, which reservoirs to release it from. So it was a kind of control problem. Um, and I realized this could be formulated as a max flow problem, but I kind of was interested in doing it in continuous time with, 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 um, with the storage in the reservoir. So I looked at that problem and, and then thought, yeah, I can generalize the the labeling algorithm of Ford and Fulkerson to continuous time um, with some approximation or appropriate approximations of the, of the continuous time um, functions that I'm going to use and as maybe piecewise linear functions and I got this kind of algorithm working and then Eddie Anderson who was another lecturer there got interested in this and then we ended up writing a paper together on on uh, the max flow algorithm and a, a max flow min cut theorem that, that um, was derived in continuous time. So uh -huh. that was sort of the beginning of my my sort of love affair at that time with continuous time optimization. Yeah, sounds fascinating. And you mentioned that uh, you had to make an algorithm work. Uh, so were you comfortable to write computer programs after arriving at Can University of Cambridge? That's, yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I was kind of dreading it a bit, Given my previous experience with the punch cards and all in in, um, in Wellington, and um, but um, Cambridge was wonderful. They had in 1979 when I got there, they had these um, microprocessors, computer automation LSI four slash thirty, I think they were, which won't mean anything to your listeners, but they were like these microprocessors which were connected up to oscilloscopes, and there were some very clever engineers in the engineering school there who had devised you know, Fortran compilers for these kind of microprocessors, but also they'd written word processors and that you could do mathematical symbols which would be displayed on the oscilloscope. So it was like a like a WYSIWYG word processor. This is in 1979. This is, you know, you know, five years before before the Mac. Uh, you know, the Macintosh game, mm -hmm. virtually doing very similar things to the Mac on these microprocessors. So I suddenly got very enthusiastic about coding. I had my own desktop microprocessor to work on. I could use that exclusively. No one else had access to it. It had floppy disks. I could just save all my stuff and, and I could work on my own time and I didn't have to rely on a, on a you know, a, a high priesthood of computer operators who would give me my punch cards 24 hours later <laughs> when I could do it, do it all on my own machine. So, yeah, this was a this was a revelation. And the word processor, I mean, I, if I, I look at my MPhil dissertation, um, you know, now 40 years later, 
and it has all this beautiful mathematics in it. We, we had this, we had this not, not the mathematics are beautiful, but the actual typography is beautiful. We had a, um, a daisy, double daisy wheel printer, and so you could then print out, without getting a secretary to do it, you'd print out on this, all this beautifully word processed mathematics with all the Greek symbols and so on, on this double daisy wheel printer to produce really nice um, typewritten text. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was a, it was a great thing to have that. And I think it was it it sort of changed the way I worked. I mean, you know, I, I remember if I can jump forward when I went to MIT later. Then I remember writing math papers there and giving them to a secretary to type up. And I found that very very cumbersome because you know she would type them up and then give them back to me and I would check them. But here, you know, the, the WYSIWYG way of doing it, of composing at the keyboard completely changed the way you know I, I, I wrote and, mm. and um, yeah it was, it was a real revelation yeah it should have been a very exciting period right uh, so tell me about your PhD work now uh, yeah so at the end of my MPhil I, I had we wrote this paper together which we sent off uh, to math of OR and it was accepted and you know I thought this is only just the beginning of, of, of a whole body of work that one could do in this space and so I convinced my supervisor to to um, write me a strong letter to say he thought I should stay and do a PhD and I then convinced the Commonwealth Scholarship Authority to provide another two years of funding which I was incredibly grateful for because uh, I, I realized it would not happen today but at that time they they seemed fairly conducive to to doing that so they they said yes we'll reluctantly agree to fund you for another two years. And, and so I then started working on other sort of versions of, of optimization problems that maybe could be amenable to, to continuous time, uh, the development of continuous time algorithms. So we looked at transportation problems, mainly problems with the network structure. Um, the key idea was that, you know, um, the network structure enabled you to, to derive algorithms that, that were were high, highly structured themselves and that led to kind of much more um a much higher likelihood of getting something that could be implementable on the computer and that you know the, there was work being done at the same time uh, george danzig and his students were working on continuous time linear programming on a general uh trying to generalize the simplex method as continuous time it's much more challenging um than doing it with a, with network problems so our approach was to kind of focus on networks and try and get those to to, to, to work. So yeah, that was a um, a focus of the PhD, and and yeah, we had some success, I think. Ah, uh, that's great. Uh, did you stay in the UK after completing your PhD? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So when I was doing my PhD, I met um, Gil Strang, who is a um, professor of maths at, at MIT, who um, was visiting Cambridge, and and we we got chatting about various things, which he was. And I were interested in, and he offered me a postdoc when I finished at, at MIT. So I went to the math department at MIT. Um, I taught his linear algebra course, which which I really enjoyed because you know, he's got a great textbook in linear algebra that most of your listeners will know about. And um, and the students were really great. So I, I taught there for a year, um, um, but discovered when I arrived there, very shortly after arriving there, that Clare College had offered me a research fellowship back in the UK. So um, I delayed that for six months and spent a year in the US and then went back to um, 
back to Cambridge to 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 Clare College for another two and a half years. Right. So, so in in what topics did you work on after returning to Cambridge? So after yeah, so I I, I went to um went back to Clare College and as I said I worked on the um continue on continuous time uh, network optimization and um, one of the things that occurred to me uh, on returning to Cambridge was the network simplex method was an example of a simplex method with a network structure so uh, that seemed to me to be the next thing to try and develop an algorithm for so I spent yeah maybe a year and a half developing an implementable algorithm for the network based on the network simplex method for um, min cost network flow problems with in continuous time with storage so that was a um, yeah that was a quite a complicated project um, and it was much more difficult than I first thought but yeah that was there was a paper in networks that Eddie Anderson and I wrote that kind of described that algorithm um, at the same time I, I had some students I had a Michael Ferris who's now a professor in, uh, in Madison uh, was an undergrad in, in Cambridge and I persuaded him to do a master's degree um, and, and in 1984 under my supervision and, and in 1984 we uh, got a preprint from Gil Strang um, who'd been to a seminar in yeah, MIT given by Narendra Karmaka on Karmaka's interior point algorithm and he sent very kindly sent me a preprint of this so yeah Michael Ferris and I worked a lot on trying to implement that and, and um, uh, seeing whether we could whether we could beat the simplex method like everyone else was doing at that time. <laughs> yeah, the, the mm. 80s was a busy period for linear programming and around that time you published the, that paper, right, entitled On the Performance of Karma Cars Algorithm. Um, do you have any more memories from that period? Uh, yeah, I have lots, but maybe it's not worth um, traversing all of them. I think I mean, were, uh, Michael and I worked on this with, based on the preprint that Gil had sent me, and, and you know, a, a couple of months later, the news broke in the New York Times and, and, and Time magazine about this algorithm, and no one in the UK knew about it apart from me because I'd been working on it, and so I got quite a bit of publicity, you know, quite fortuitously, and thanks very much to Gil for, for, the, for the, um, the heads up. I got the, a lot of publicity wrote an article for New Scientist and went to the Royal Society and gave a presentation on the work that Michael and I had been doing. You know, I was a very junior researcher, but was quite flattered to be in the company of people like Mike Powell and Martin Beale and so on, some of the, you know, the giants of the, of the optimization field in the UK who, who were also at that, that meeting. So yeah, it was really a, a, a thrill to do that. Um, um, we, we didn't it was kind of interesting we didn't really ever get it to work the way we'd hoped and um you know uh talking to mauricio Resendi, uh, actually last year i was at amazon and i spoke to him about what the work he'd be doing at bell labs um and and um with Carmichael and and he and at berkeley and he he was saying there were lots of tricks that they put into that which we knew about but thought we could emulate and of course the, the tricks were way way more sophisticated than, than our, our meager numerical analysis could, <laughs> could master. So, yeah, so I think, you know, it was a great time, a really good fun. Um, it, it really changed the whole landscape of, of math programming, and, and so it was exciting to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Mauricio Rezende spoke about uh, that event uh, in his uh, episode on subject two, so uh, uh, I'm quite familiar with the story. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I'm impressed that you, you, you got the news uh, about uh, the Karma Cars algorithm before it was published. So you, you, you kind of had a spoiler of what was coming next, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, yeah, it was something before it went public. I think it was like, I, I maybe, maybe said a month or something. It was, it was probably less than that. It was, a bit, it was in advance. And I remember reading it and talking to Michael about it and thinking, oh, we should try and implement this. And then the news came out, you know, it was made public and we had, mm-hmm. I guess, some advanced knowledge. So that was very helpful to, uh, to us. Yeah. Uh, did you attend the legendary 1985 ISMP conference in Boston? I did attend that meeting. Um, oh. That was the first ISMP that I went to, in fact, um, and um, it was a very exciting meeting. Um, of course, George Danzig was there, um, and uh, Leonid Katorovich was there as a as a speaker, and Karmaka was there, of course, as well. So, um, three of the giants of linear programming. Um, I remember seeing them all standing together and. Uh, in the front of a room once. I thought, I wish I'd take a photo of it. It was a very historic occasion to see the three of them standing in a group together. But um, yes, um, very so exciting. So you saw them uh, at the same time, the three of them talking? Three of them standing together, talk, chatting. So wow. I, um, about, um, I, I'm not sure what, but um, possibly linear programming. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there was a lot of controversy, I, I guess, at that meeting. Um, because people were trying to emulate Kamaka's results that he'd published, or hadn't published but announced, of, of, of um, uh, improving on the simplex algorithm on many benchmarks and uh, benchmark problems. And the Stanford group, Margaret Wright, uh, Mike Saunders, Philip Gill, and, and Walter Murray had worked on this. And The Gang of Four, uh, right? The Gang of Four. They, they'd written a paper where they called this a barrier method uh, mm-hmm. because they identified that the rescaling that was going on in Karmaka's method was actually uh, equivalent to a log barrier method. And so... Yeah, it was shown later, were, right? Uh, I mean, but it took a while for the community to digest that, so yeah. Yeah, so I think, I, I think remember Narendra Karmaka standing up and after Margaret Wright's lecture saying, why are you calling, calling the barrier method? It's actually... Um, Carmichael's method, and, and uh, so there's quite a, a bit of a standoff there, which was kind of um, entertaining, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah there were heated uh, discussions. Yeah, it, was, right? it, was, it was a very interesting time. Michael Ferris came too as a student, and yeah, we were talking. We met up with Irv Lustig, that, who worked a lot with Bob Vanderbye and others on 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 implementations. And so we met all the people who were working in this in this space, which is really good fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Uh, Karma Kar gave a talk, and then uh, Margaret Wright also gave one. And at some point, there were heated discussions, uh, uh, right? And so that's what makes this conference really a uh, game changer and really important in our field, right? And I mean, it's it's fantastic that you had a chance to be there. Yeah, no, it, it was interesting because the um, the the there was a very divided opinion at that time about. You know whether this was genuine, or whether in fact you know it was something that was AT and T had done for publicity, and that whether it was just going to fade away as a, as a curiosity. I mean, people had, of course, you know, read about Katyan's algorithm, which was 
also polynomial, but didn't work very well in practice. So they had suspicions that maybe this was just another thing like that, which would have been a contribution, but not really the, 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 the breakthrough that Carmichael was claiming. And, um, but, you know, you know, time has shown that actually it was a watershed moment. It really changed the, 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 the whole nature of optimization, math programming, and, and the whole interior point revolution, of course, led to, you know, conic, solving conic problems and semi-different programming problems and, and, and all the, the, the work of Nemirovsky and Nesterov and working, looking at self-concordant barrier functions, all of this stuff, you know, emerged out of that, that one discovery. So I think that, you know, it was a watershed moment, looking back in hindsight. Yeah. Uh, so why did you decide to return to New Zealand? Uh, I guess, yeah, that was a difficult decision, but I, there were family reasons. I, my parents were getting older and I wanted to spend time with them. A job opportunity came up at Auckland, which had not, in, in optimization, and there hadn't been any um, job opportunities uh, or adver adver job advertisements for, for like five or 10 years. I hadn't seen any. So I thought this would be one opportunity to, to, to return um, to New Zealand. Um, so yeah, I, I decided to um, to make that move. Um, to be honest, I thought it probably was a temporary thing. Maybe I would try it for four or five years and then maybe move back to the Northern Hemisphere. But um, um, as things turned out, I got married, had family, and you know, and I've been here ever since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so you've been talking about uh, continuous time linear programming, continuous time network. Uh, uh, design and algorithms, uh, but then uh, you switched direction. And what motivated you to start studying stochastic programming? Good question. Yeah. I, so when I got back to Auckland, I, I continued looking at continuously programming and um, pursuing that. I had a couple of students who I um, supervised on that topic, but um, the rest of the department I was working with were very much um, working in applications. So the professor here at the time, David Ryan, was a very strong advocate for work, applying OR in practice, and he was very good at that. And um, he convinced me that, you know, though he, he thought the, the continuous time linear program was interesting theoretically, that it wasn't really something I should pursue in New Zealand if I wanted to advance my career in New Zealand. Because, um, so I, you know, secretly continued working on that, but I decided I, I needed another direction. And um, and he was working in, in, in aircrew scheduling. I kind of started to um, look at that and I decided that wasn't really, for me, it was kind of, you know, um, zero integer programming. And then Roger Wetz came here and visited just um, by chance and gave a talk in our department and, and, and stayed with my wife and me for a couple of nights. And I got talking to him about you know, OR and so on. And, and he gave this talk about the progressive hedging algorithm, which is a method he and Terry Rockefeller invented in, in, in the late 80s for taking a deterministic, a deterministic optimization problem and then saying, suppose there's some uncertainty in the parameters. How do you convert that to a stochastic, how that deterministic algorithm to a, an algorithm that will solve the stochastic problem, right? So uh -huh. regressive hedging is this method, a decomposition method they yeah. came up with. And Many of your readers, will, your listeners, will know about it. But anyway, he, talk, he gave a talk about this, 
1989 and, and I was really taken with this and thought, yes, this is the area I want to work in. I could see lots of problems in New Zealand that would benefit from stochastic optimization models. And so I thought, yeah, and no one else in our department was doing that. So I thought this is an area I should focus in. So I moved sort of sideways and started working in that area a lot more. Mm -hmm. Okay, Andy, uh, there are distinct ways of using stochastic programming to solve optimization problems uh, under uncertainty. For example, one can employ classical approaches like uh, the L-shaped methods over a limited number of scenarios, or one can develop sampling-based algorithms. Then you have uh, the stochastic dual dynamic programming algorithms, the STDP, famous one by uh, Brazilian uh, researcher Mario mm -hmm. Vega, uh, Mario Vega Pereira, uh, mm -hmm. and so on. So when to use uh, each of these different methods? Uh, you know, when you know to use the right hammer. Uh, to, to address the right problem? Because when you talk about stochastic programming, you know, there's just too many things, right? Yeah, well, that's a very, that's a very big question, Anand, and, you know, um, I'm not sure I can do it justice in a, in a, in a five-minute kind of answer or even, a, even a, uh, No, take your long. time. Take your time, please. But, uh, you know, I think... So, first of all, what is, what is stochastic programming? So there are kind of different definitions of this. Some people say, you know, to say, oh, stochastic programming builds a tree and solves a problem as a deterministic equivalent um, linear you know, optimization problem in a tree. So the, the, the stochastic programming community who work in this area has a much broader church, is a much broader church than that. I mean, we talk about all sorts of stochastic optimization methodologies and approaches for solving problems. And these are going to depend on the particular model that you've, you, you're looking at. So, um, so first of all, you know, you know, one criticism of scenario trees is that where do you get the scenario tree from? Okay, so one one approach is to say, well, you 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 construct that you take some data and you look at trying to construct a tree that has certain properties that match the data, like has the same moments, first and second moments, or whatever. And you know that's okay, and it kind of works. But if the dimension of the random variable is very large, then you know you you're going to run into difficulty. Just computing an expectation of a function of a random variable that has high dimension is impossible unless you do something like Monte Carlo, right? So then you have to say we well, have to sample to get any hope of getting a low a low error kind of estimate of the number you're trying to optimize. So that that's kind of leads you to kind of a you know a different paradigm. So, but you know. I, there's something in the first approach which is, you know, is not completely without merit. I mean, I think that's that's the thing. I mean, you can say, well, actually, you would never do that because you know you take a random variable with you know um, twenty components, then you're never going to be able to compute the expectations if you do that. But suppose you're looking at a problem, some of the problems we've been looking at, where you have a fifty-year, well, you're looking at planning for 2050. What's the world going to look like in 2050? What I want to do is plan the expansion of renewable energy to meet, you know, the demand for 2050. I have no idea what the demand is going to be like in 2050, and I can't use, I don't know what a probability distribution of that is, because I have no data for that, really. I can maybe forecast it, but even that's kind of highly problematic. So, you know, you've got to take some educated guesses about what the world might look like, and there'll be different outcomes for that, different scenarios, and you can 
assign likelihood to those if you want to, but let's not call them probabilities. Let's just think about different states of the world. And you want to make a sequence of decisions now and going forward that somehow is robust and 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 flexible enough to deal with those different states of the world. And then then a scenario tree kind of makes sense, right? So so in those sorts of models, you know, a scenario tree will be the right the right sort of approach. Now there are other models where, you know, like you talk about STDP, which is in, in terms of hydro scheduling. So you know, Mario, Mario Pereira's paper describes this as a, as an optimization. I'm not sure his paper does, but many people do. They describe this as an optimization problem in a scenario tree, which is very, very large. It has has you know um, you know ten to the power of fifty kind of um, outcomes, right? Or, or scenarios, just enormous, right? Um, and so they treat it as this problem in a tree as a nested decomposition method. I don't think that's very fruitful at all. I think your know, stochastic optimization in, the, in that that's in that setting is more about stochastic control, and that is more about dynamic programming. So mm -hmm. SCP is essentially an approximation of dynamic programming type of methodology. So you know to say, well, you know, it's not stochastic programming. Well, it is kind of it's stochastic optimization, but it's not really in the tree paradigm, right? It's yes. a, it's built around a stochastic programming paradigm uh -huh. and using independence of the random variables to kind of get you some leverage in terms of how you how you do that stochastic programming. And 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 there's sampling and all that built into it, but it's essentially a stochastic programming methodology. It's a stochastic, a stochastic dynamic programming methodology, mm -hmm. I should say. So yeah, so that my answer to the question is, you know. Yeah, what should you use? Well, it depends on the problem setting. And one should be entirely eclectic in choosing the methodology because there are a whole lot of different communities that use different methodologies here, and they're all suited to different kind of environments. And you should choose the right approach for the right environment. Yeah, there's, there's also the issue of uh, being aware or not about the ground truth distribution that also might affect a lot the way in which you solve the problem, right? Yeah, so, you know, the the, the ground truth distribution, if we talk about the, the 2050 planning problem, I'm not sure it makes sense to talk about a ground truth probability distribution there. Um, maybe it does, but that would be much more sensible if you were doing something over and over again, if you were repeating, you know, like solving a news vendor problem with random demand periodically, you know, every, every, every day. And so, you know, we know, you know, we can solve that problem analytically for a ground truth you know, distribution using a quantile. But, um, you know, if you were solving that using, for example, sample average approximation, then, yeah, you have to bear in mind, you know, how will that method perform, you know, under different assumptions about the ground truth distribution. And, um, you know, there is some interesting recent work that says, well, you know, um, sometimes doesn't perform that well. You know, the ground truth distribution has very high um, right skew, and sometimes you can get um, um, solutions to these stochastic optimization problems with samples that actually don't perform that well out of sample. So yes, I think this is a, you know, this is an interesting question. You know, I can talk about it at much greater length, but I, you know, I, I should say, I think this is something that the stochastic programming community is starting to have learned recently from the machine learning people that you know this there is this idea of testing your, your your policies out of sample and seeing how well they go and 
and it's not always the case that they do as well as you think they're going to do. Right. Um, so what are the open research questions regarding stochastic programming, in your opinion? Well, it's another, another big question. Um, um, so one thing is, you know, I, you know, I mentioned this idea of people think stochastic programming is the idea of a tree and, and you know, that kind of view of the, of the field became popular, I think, or became widespread in, in, in the 1990s when the community was sort of working in that, in that paradigm. But, and there was a quite a small community working in that paradigm, to be honest, there was not that many people. Now everyone's solving problems under uncertainty, right? It's become, you know, everyone in math programming is doing, trying to deal with uncertainty in some setting. So it's become kind of ubiquitous. So there's a lot of communities working in this area. And so if you talk about open problems, each of those communities will have their own, their own open problems. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm not familiar with all of those communities. And I'll tell you what I think, for me, the interesting problems are, I mean, which is still kind of open, and then maybe um, that can be enough. Um, so one thing I've been looking at recently is, is this problem of multi-horizon scenario trees. So these are multi-stage problems over long decision horizons where there are multiple timescales. So in electricity, for example, which is my area, um, you want to decide how to expand the capacity of all your generation plant <coughs> over, say, a 30-year time horizon. And then you look at what happens in each year You've got another stochastic optimization problem, which has uncertain wind and, and, and failures of plant and so on. You've got another stochastic optimization problem that uses that plant optimally. So there's a different time scale there that's embedded within the, the coarser time scale. And these problems, you know, you know, these are really important problems for us to grapple with. We have to solve these if we're going to figure out how to decarbonize. So that's an area, I think, where people have... Yeah, algorithmically, people I think are not really haven't really grappled, grasped that nettle and, and and figured out how to do that. Um, so I think there's a there's a there's a big opportunity there. There's also an opportunity there in understanding risk, because you know, we've got different timescales. You have kind of risk happening different at, at different levels of kind of discretization. So you think about over 50 years, you think, you know, what's the risk that if we don't do this, you know, that we're going to have a, a climate crisis. What's the risk? You know, you know, what's the risk that we, the cost of of of, of um, lithium or the, the availability of lithium is going to be be severely curtailed? You know, what's the risk of some you know event like the invasion of Ukraine? All of these things are very very hard to kind of quantify. And then there's the kind of short term risk. You know, I'm operating a hydro system. I've got a risk of weather, the rain not happening. And I'm going short of water, and then there's the risk of the wind not blowing, and I've got high demand. So all of these things kind of have to be factored in by people making investments. And I don't know really how to how to how to do that in a way which is kind of um, principled. So I think that's a very big and unsolved problem that that we have to have to grapple with. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. So since you've been talking about uh, uh, applications and open questions in the field of stochastic programming. Uh, let's break some of them down. I know you've done a lot of work. You have a large amount of papers published in the topic. Uh, so could you first uh, talk about your work involving hydroelectricity markets? 
Um, sure. Okay. So um, got to be a little bit careful here because I worked in electricity markets and I've worked in hydroelectricity optimization. And there are many countries in the world that have electricity markets and no hydro and mark countries like Brazil, your country that has not really a wholesale electricity market, but have a hydro electricity system. In New Zealand, we have both. So the two are kind of related. So um, I think probably um, I should talk first of all about hydroelectricity optimization, which is kind of the problem of, of um, uh, deciding how to release water from reservoirs over, over kind of um, several periods of time in order to meet um, demand at least cost. So um, this problem is, is, a, is a stochastic control problem, right? You have a state variable, which is the amount of water in each reservoir, and you have controls, which are what you release from those reservoirs. And it's stochastic because the inflows into the reservoirs are random. This is a problem you in Brazil and Anand will be very familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, the most popular technique for solving these sorts of problems is called STDP. It was developed by one of your countrymen who you mentioned, Mario Pereira. And I should talk a little bit about my history of working on this. I've met Mario several times and, and we get on quite well. He had a, um, a colleague, Tom Halliburton in New Zealand, who um, was very keen on implementing STDP for the New Zealand system back in the 1990s, very shortly after it was um, developed. And Tom approached me to work on a project with a student to look at this. So we did this in 1995 and um, studied the and learned about the algorithm and implemented it in a very crude way. Um, but then in 1996, uh, New Zealand formed the wholesale electricity market where um, the industry saw no need for the software because this is a social planning model. It's for planning the whole system and they were broken up into individual, individual generators who were only interested in maximizing their own operating surplus, not on operating the system, right? So I sort of left it at that point for a few years and, and then came back to it in um, the early 2000s when I had a, a student, another student, who was looking at um, um, optimizing the production and sales of dairy products with a dairy company in New Zealand. And this was a, could be solved using SDDP. So we developed an ample model for this um, ample code for SDDP. And we wrote a paper in 2008 that sort of showed I mean, what conditions you need on the on the sampling process in STDP to ensure that the algorithm would converge to the right answer, right? So this was a kind of a, a paper that effectively took what was out there in the in the folklore, which people kind of assumed, but hadn't really formalized and made a formal argument to say this is when it will converge and this is when you have to be careful when it will not converge. So um, that was in 2008, and then I had a visit from Vito Dematis, who's one of your countrymen from Florinopolis, uh -huh. as a PhD student, and we worked on um, a code that he had developed in C++, which we then ported to something called DOSA in New Zealand, uh, which was developed by Jeff Pritchard, my colleague and I, and then we licensed this to the New Zealand Electricity Authority for use um, in looking at security of supply, not so much in the market, but just seeing how secure the supply of hydroelectricity was. So um, after DOSA, I had another student, Oscar Dowson, and another student, Leah Kaplovich. And Oscar 
developed a Julia code called stdp.jl, which has now um, been become very popular. And we took that on and replaced DOSA with stdp.jl because it was about the same speed as the C++ code, or a little bit slower, but had great greater flexibility, as you might understand. So this is all based around Julia, uh, the Julia language, and, and the jump um, modeling language um, that Oscar also um, is in charge of. So that's something we use now uh, exclusively. So yeah, that's that's the history of of, of STDP. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's great. Mm. Uh, so there have been plenty of recent models in the literature addressing the issue of decarbonization of energy systems as well as the problem of optimizing transmission capacity extension that you already mentioned. And uh, tell me about your contributions in these areas. Yeah, so I, I started working in this renewable energy area um, as as a into the decarbonisation when I was uh, engaged as a consultant by the Interim Climate Change Commission back in 2016, before the Climate Change Commission was set up as a as a body in New Zealand, um, and in, this Interim Climate Change Commission was set up to investigate the feasibility of New Zealand uh, becoming 100% renewable in electricity. So we're closing down all our gas and coal plants. So I worked on this problem with Michael Ferris, who was visiting me on a sabbatical and, and another colleague, Tony Downward, and developing multi-horizon um, models for this problem. And you know, part of it was motivated by this Climate Change Commission question, but also we were interested in how you would decarbonize over long time horizons, as I was talking about before. Um, and you know, the, the kind of, I guess the key takeaway from our research was that it was kind of obvious in, 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 um, when we started this, but we wanted to get a model to com confirm it, was that going 100% renewable was very expensive. So closing down that last gas plant suddenly increased the cost enormously. And the reason is in New Zealand, we have no opportunity to import Power. We're two islands, we're isolated, and it's a bit like Brazil in a sense, that you can't import power from other countries. So, um, you know, when you get short of energy, you have to generate using a, a source that's dispatchable like gas or coal, if there is a very little water supply, or, uh, or the reservoirs are low. So, um, yeah, so that, if you can't do that, you have to shed load, and that's very expensive. Either that or you have to overbuild, you know, wind. It's also very expensive. So the, the idea of going to 100% renewable energy by capacity, renewable electricity, I should say, by capacity is very, very expensive. And our model showed this. And um, I think the, the, the other folk on the Climate Change Commission kind of, I think, understood this um, and the model confirmed it. And the government has consequently backtracked on this on this aspiration. And they're saying, we, well, we realize that some gas plant may have to be um, um, remain in order to to uh, to keep the system going and we can make you know, reductions in carbon emissions in, in, in other areas like agriculture and transport much more cheaply than having 100% renewable electricity so that's I think was a, an outcome of that mm. and we're continuing to work on that um, um, with with, um, with Michael and and also uh, with with folk in the climate change commission right. Um, I noticed uh, that you have been working on perfect competitive equilibrium with risk-averse investors to social planning problems. 
Uh, could you elaborate more on this, please? I'm, I, I hope you uh, <laughs> really want to hear this, but yeah, I, I can. I can, uh, yeah, I mean, okay, so, okay, so I mentioned STDP, right, as being a technology that is used in places like Brazil, but really don't have a market, you use that to tell, to compute prices and then tell generators what to, what to generate. In New Zealand, generators aren't really interested in that, they want to maximize their, their own profits. And so um, the question is, what's the point in having something like STDP? As a, as a social planning model. Well, um, it turns out that um, if all the agents in the market, the generators and consumers and so on, are risk neutral, in other words, they just maximize their expected um, rewards, then, and they're perfectly competitive, so they're price takers, and markets for things are complete. And what do I mean by that? Well, mm -hmm. I mean that everything that you know you want to uh, constrain or, or it has a has a has a, uh, a price that you can an instrument that you can trade in the market, and there's a price that's settled by the market. So here's an example. So let, suppose you had two reservoirs owned by different agents, one upstream down of the other, uh, upstream of the other one then you know, you're going to have to kind of coordinate the water release from the top guy to the bottom guy. And if they're independent agents, then effectively there has to be a payment from one guy to the other. It's a price for the water transfer. And if there isn't that price for the water transfer, no market for that, where that price is settled, then you can get inefficiencies because you have to get some way of deciding what the optimum level of water transfer between those two agents is. So if that complete market I mean there's a there's a there's a price for that thing that that's settled in the market and those agents will pay it so if that happens then you can show that an sddp solution generates a perfectly competitive equilibrium major problem is that all the agents in the market are essentially risk averse mm -hmm. so that theorem that welfare theorem that says the optimization problem gives you a competitive equilibrium it, it, it does not apply and so how do you do that? Well, it turns out there is some theory that enables you to do that, but you have to use very specific um, models for risk. You have to use models of risk that are essentially convex. Um, and the, 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 the paper that does this uses what are called coherent risk measures that have another condition on them, but these are essentially convex um, measures of risk. So the theorem, uh, there are several theorems on this. One theorem by Danny Ralph and Eve Smears says, you know, in a, a two-stage setting, if everyone has a coherent measure of risk and they're optimizing using that and they are perfect, they can perfectly competitive, so they're price takers, they're not trying to influence price by their actions. And the markets for things like water transfer are com complete. And moreover, the markets for risk are complete. What does that mean? That means agents can trade different risk positions with each other at certain prices. They can trade outcomes in, in states of the world. So I can sort of swap a sort of bad outcome in, in my world for, for a good outcome in your world at a certain price. And there's a price in the market that, that enables that trade. Then these welfare theorems apply. So the welfare theorems essentially say, well, okay, what does that mean? 
you solve SDDP and that gives you a solution to the risk to competitive equilibrium with everyone trading this risk. Well, how do you solve SDDP? Well, first of all, you've got to have a risk measure in SDDP. First of all, can't be risk neutral because that would assume everyone was risk neutral, but they're not. So there's some re residual risk that SDDP has to use. What is that? Well, it turns out you can derive that from the risk measures of all the agents. Effectively, the social planner uses a risk measure that's the risk attitude of the least risk averse agent. So if there's one agent who's like a speculator who's risk neutral, effectively, he's going to kind of trade all the risk of all the other guys and everyone will work out not caring about risk because that's all taken by the speculator. So it's kind of slightly curious result, but it's, it's you know, it can be proved. And Ralph and, and Smears proved this a few years back and then Michael Ferris and I proved a version for hydro electricity that showed this all worked in a multi-stage setting as well. So cut a long story short, which <laughs> this is, I'm sorry, Anand, the, the long story has the conclusion that you can study a competitive equilibrium with risk-averse agents in a perfectly competitive market that's complete for risk, or nearly complete. It doesn't, you know, you can be nearly complete. You have lots of instruments for trading, and you can then approximate or get close to completion of the market. You can study that by solving a social planning problem with risk aversion. And so you can take SDDP, develop a risk averse version of that, which Peter DeMartis and I did a few years back, and solve that and see this is what an equilibrium will look like in this market. If it doesn't look like that, then you've got to make some changes to the market because that's kind of the gold standard that you're trying to aim for. So that I think is where this this risk uh, optimization come you know has a very nice interplay with 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 um, um, studying markets and trying to understand you know how competitive they are, how they're behaving, and whether they're working well. Mm -hmm. It can be hard to implement that though. <laughs> hard to implement the. Um, algorithm or the policies, the, the policies. I mean, uh, to, to because your play, the, the players might not be, uh, you know, willing to cooperate. You know what I'm saying? So that's that. That's a good point. So you know, the the I think part of the question is is monitoring. So in markets like um, Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland, PJM in the US, uh, there's very strict market monitoring. So it, because they solve this dispatch problem that assumes that people are offering in their short run marginal cost of generation and their lots of thermal plant. And so there's a lot of um, uh, checking to see whether people are doing that. In a hydro system, it's quite difficult to do that. It's difficult because actually the cost of offering in your generation for an agent, if you have stored water, is the opportunity cost of that water. And that relies on your view of the future. So you can take a position that the op your opportunity cost is sort of high and that's my view of the future. So I think, I know it's hard to, it's hard to, to legislate for that, but what it is easy to do is, is using a monitoring technique to say, this model tells us that if you have this risk measure and you're perfectly competitive and we have enough instruments, which we think we do in the market to trade your risk, then this is the sort of water value that you would use. But your water value is three times that. So please explain. What's, what is it we're missing here in our, in our interpretation of your behavior? 
So if it's if it's they're exercising market power, then that's that's something you don't want to have, right? But if it says, well, we can't trade our risk for this particular event, then you can start thinking, yeah, well, actually, that's a, that's an issue with the, the market design. We need to try and alleviate that. So I think there's lots of it's really a diagnostic measure rather than a kind of a a, a, um, a measure for that's um, supposed to supposed to entail um, dictating to the generators what what they should do, right? So mm. it's not prescriptive. It's rather than it is a prescriptive model, but it's really really saying this is what we should be seeing in a competitive market. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, so Andy, to uh, conclude this chapter of our conversation regarding stochastic programming, stochastic optimization, uh, what's the story behind your involvement uh, with Team New Zealand in the Americans Cup? Um, so when I was in the UK as a student, um, I was very interested in, in um, the America's Cup. And when I was in the US in, at MIT, I went down to Newport and watched the uh, Australians win the America's Cup off the US in 1983. So, um, yeah, I got very excited by this. And when I got back to New Zealand in 1986, I discovered that New Zealand had a team who were challenging, going to challenge for the America's Cup. And I was in the engineering school at the university and some of the professors here were working with the uh, team. So I made an effort to try and get involved with that group of people and help um, with various challenges. So the first challenge I worked on was in 1995 when um, Team New Zealand won the America's Cup off Dennis Connor in San Diego and um, brought it back to New Zealand. Um, and that was the, the project there was very simple. It was really trying to analyze how fast a design, a yacht design would go by simulating in a computer. Um, so that was some fairly straightforward optimization and coding. Uh, and then in 2000, we had the defense of the America's Cup and uh, with Shane Henderson at Cornell, now at Cornell and a student, we developed a simulation model of a match race which was in, ended up being published in, in uh, operations research. Um, and this model enabled um, Team New Zealand to compare different designs of boats, racing them around a course in a simulation with random wind changes and, and so on against a competing, competing boat to develop a kind of table of, on which boats would be better um, in, to choose to defend the cup. And the boat they eventually defended in was the one that we said they should choose. Um, uh, it was fairly obvious. I think they knew at the time it was going to be faster, but our simulations confirmed that. And yeah. they won the America's Cup again in 2000. And then in 2003, uh, I did a project with the weather team on uh, that defense of the America's Cup, where um, we were looking at how to decide which side of the course you should start off on at the start of the race. So we should go to the left-hand side or the right-hand side. And this depended on um, finding an optimum route for a sailing boat to go from the start to the top mark of the course in a stochastic wind. So it was a kind of a, um, a stochastic shortest path problem, which we solved using um, dynamic programming and came up with kind of recommendations about which side of the course to go. Unfortunately, the boat that they chose was not very competitive for that regatta, and they lost the cup to to um, uh, the Swiss team who, who took it back to Europe. So um, I haven't been involved in, beyond that um, uh, that that regatta in the in the work. 
Yeah, but this is very impressive. Uh, were you involved in any other uh, work uh, in the context of sporting events? Uh, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I should mention this. Um, the quite a while before the Team New Zealand um, work in 1980, in the late 1980s, uh, I developed um, some software for um, one of the boats racing around the world in the Volvo. It's called now called the Vo used to be called the Volvo Ocean Race. I don't think it's called that anymore, but it used to be called the Whitbread Round the World Yacht Race back in the 1980s. And I developed some software for one of the boats in that, which wasn't. Um, uh, terribly good, and, and what happened? I, interesting story. They, they, I developed with a, a with a meteorologist to try and figure out what the best route to sail between two ports were, and um, the boat used it on the first leg, but the navigator on the boat actually missed a crucial weather forecast. So, the the information in the model was not really up to date, and they ended up um, not winning the the race, running that leg of the race, so they decided to abandon the, 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 the software. Anyway, further down the track in 2003, um, some other people found out, heard about this work that I'd done in the, um, the yachting uh, route optimization and said, can I develop a route for them to row a rowing boat across the Atlantic? It was in the, the two-handed Woodvale transatlantic rowing race. So this is where two guys sit in a boat for 42 days, um, rowing from uh, the Canary Islands to Barbados. So I uh, had an ex-student who was I was working with at the time, and he, he and I put together a model um, based on observations of wind and current in the North Atlantic that would be um, uh, provide a kind of stochastic shortest path for sailing rowing a boat across across the Atlantic and as part of that we produced some charts laminated charts that they took on the on the rowing boat they weren't allowed to have a computer assistance from the shore or they weren't, didn't have enough power to run a computer to figure out you know do any optimization on board they had these charts which effectively encapsulated what an optimum policy would be given them being at a certain location in the ocean they could use these charts to figure out where to row and they used them and um, they ended up winning the race and winning the race in a record time. And I have to say the, the, um, the record they, they broke in 2003 is still the world record for two people rowing across the Atlantic from um, Canary Islands to Barbados. So the, 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 um, the, the route, routing policy that we gave them encapsulated in these charts was, was very useful. Wow. That's so cool. So you were directly involved with the world breaking record of a very relevant uh, event and the record still stands to this date. It's absolutely the record still stands, I believe. Yes. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So I think that, that it was it was a great project and the, um, you know, the the very interesting project because, you know, we couldn't use a computer. So we had to come up with, you know, very simple rules of thumb that they could use. And of course, you know, we know policies for dynamic programs are essentially policies, they're rules of thumb. If you see yourself in this part of the ocean, this is the wind you're seeing, and this is the current you're seeing at this point, then this is the direction you should row. Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm very impressed about this. This is fantastic. Uh, so, Andy, now let's talk about your very successful collaboration with Norske Skug from Norway. 
that helped the company save a hundred million annually. Yeah, that was dollars. a very <laughs> hundred million US dollars. Yes. Um, well, in the Edelman contest, you might know you, you have to uh, have the savings that you claim audited by someone and officially kind of recognized by the auditor. And that was the number they came up with. I didn't realize that at the time we we're doing the work that that was the, the sorts of savings that we were going to create from this project. Um, it, the work was went way back to the middle of the 1990s. I worked as a consultant with an ex-student uh, who was uh, one of the um, energy managers at their mill. And I was thinking of how to purchase electricity for them. Um, and he came up with this question of, well, we don't, we need, need to figure out a product mix for our, for our newsprint. We've got different grades of newsprint we're making and, you know, can you help us do that? So we developed, he and I developed an Ample model, um, Ample CPLEX model um, called Pivot, which was a MIP, which um, determined for their plant in New Zealand, which grades of paper they should make and how to, um, where to sell them. And um, that model was sat in the company for a number of years as, a, as um, some software that wasn't really used by the company, even though they, they paid for it, they, they didn't really use it until they acquired um, some other paper mills. The company was at the time called Fletcher Paper. They acquired some other paper mills in Australia and they needed to rationalize how they produced newsprint across the two companies. So now they acquired new paper, paper, new paper mills with new capacities and so on. They had to run Pivot, so they, we extended Pivot to include the Australian mills, and they used it to say, okay, we can use this to rationalise our, our um, the way we make pa paper in um, Australia, New Zealand. And then about two years after that, the company Fletcher Paper was acquired by Norskoskuk, the Norwegian newsprint company who have mills around the world. And they learned about this pivot model and said, "We can we do something for Europe? And so we developed a European version of them. And then around 2007, 2007 they said to us, um, actually, newsprint is really declining. We have a very difficult situation in newsprint because people are not reading newspapers anymore and um, the internet start is grow has grown enormously. And so we're getting less and less demand for newsprint. We need to close down some mills and we're going to close some mills in Europe. But um, there was a, quite a, a, a debate in, amongst the Norwegians about which mill should be closed in Europe. And they had some difficulties with um, some of the union officials in, in Norway who said, we object to closing down this mill in Norway. So um, Rune Gessing, who was one of the executives at Norske School, said, we will develop a model for you that decides what mills to close. If you agree with the inputs in the model and the model says we close this mill in Norway, you will agree with that. And they agreed, yes, if you do a model and we'll just audit the inputs, then we'll, we'll decide. So we built a model for the world, for Norske Skug, of all their mills and paper mills. Uh, and it was a big MIP and said, you know, which mills should you close down to save on fixed costs and so on and so forth. Um, and it turned out that actually the, the, the European mills were not the ones that chose to close, even though they were um, 
uh, quite expensive, and they, they and they weren't making much margin, and, and they couldn't the Norwegians couldn't figure this out. They said, why is it not choosing these mills? And the key thing was that um, once you close a mill, you can't just look at what the other mills were doing. You have to resolve the MIP again to reorganize everything to make it efficient. And so once you resolve it, you get a completely different solution. And once you do that completely different solution, you find that actually it would be better to close a different mill to get that different solution, right? Mm -hmm. Not the ones you first thought of. Mm -hmm. So in fact, they ended up closing, or they were going to close some mills in, in Korea, but ended up selling those mills um, to a consortium of um, uh, Korean owners and I think it was Morgan Stanley. I, I'm not quite sure of that, but I think it was Morgan Stanley bought those mills for quite a good, reasonable price. They sold them. And so how does that save $100 million uh, a year? Well, the deal closed a week before Lehman Brothers went bust in 2008. They got the cash and basically were, got rid of debt. And then, of course, you know the, the, the GFC happened. And if, if they'd still had those mills and that level of debt, they claimed they would have gone broke. So they saved themselves, you know, effectively saved the company by, by that decision. So was it our model? I think that would be um, flattering to say <laughs> we saved the company that amount. Uh, it was a, a huge dose of luck involved, but um, it was a very nice project. And I think without the model, they probably would have made a different, a different decision and, and maybe not saved as much yeah. money. Yes, they did. That's incredible. So, and in changing topics completely, uh, I realized that you did not publish a single journal paper for about five consecutive years during the 90s. Um, was there a special reason for this hi hiatus? Uh, well, those people who know me well will know the reason. Um, so I should share that with you. Uh, my wife and I had triplets in 1994 and um, so I needed to do quite a bit of consulting work to pay for um, their um, uh, costs and not to mention helping with um, with my wife um, when they were babies. Um, I have to say my wife's very competent and very generous, <laughs> so I, I can't pretend to have been a great help. Um, but and I have to say, you know, we were very busy during that, that period, so I didn't have much time for, for writing papers. Um, in those in those five years before the kids went to school, so that's the reason for the hiatus. Yeah, now it makes total sense. Uh, how many kids do you have in total? We have four children. Yeah, they were, well, they were born ninety four, so that triplets are twenty nine. I have one daughter who's who's thirty one. So yeah, they, they're quite a lot older. Okay, so um, you already had a two year old kid uh, when you got the triplets. We did that. Yeah, it was kind <laughs> of it was pretty. Wow. Enough. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, Andy, uh, what do you intend to do in the coming years? Any plans of retirement? You're still no, young? No, no plans to retire. No, still enjoying my work here in Auckland and uh, got some good PhD students. I'm working with Michael Ferris quite a lot. We're still working on um, problems of renewable energy and decarbonisation and thinking about some of the interesting mathematical issues underlying those problems. Um, you know, um, how to make it work in markets. Um, I think this decarbonization is going to be a very fruitful area for OR. So my um, yeah, my goal is to continue trying to contribute to that as long as some um, people think I can. So yeah, um, that'll be me for the next four or five years at least, I think. Okay. 
So Andy, it was great to have you here. Uh, uh, I mean, it was a fantastic uh, conversation. I, I learned a lot. Uh, and also, you know, uh, I was very impressed about your achievements, your practical achievements, other than publishing papers. And, and it's been, uh, you know, great. So thanks, thanks really. Thanks, Anand. I, I appreciate the opportunity and, and it's been good fun. So, yeah, and I hope we can meet in person sometime. Yeah, for sure. We, we are, we're both in the Southern Hemisphere, but we are <laughs> literally uh, a world apart of each other. So, uh, and of course, I don't have to say that you're most welcome to visit Brazil and Jean Pessoa, our place. So thank you so much. Uh, it's been great and uh, all the best. Take care. And uh, let's, let's meet one of these days. Ciao. Bye. Right.